I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall, and this is Disorder. A podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like climate change, NATO enlargement, or neopopulism. Discussing how these issues have come to be part and parcel of our era of global enduring disorder. And where we finish by proposing solutions to restore effective collective action that could ultimately, maybe, inshallah, help us find a semblance of order. This week, we're going to build on a previous episode, which you can hear by following the links in our show notes, and look again at NATO. This summer, there was a NATO summit in Lithuania, and so we're going to talk about the outcomes of that. We'll also analyze what we should be aiming to achieve at the next NATO summit in Washington next year, which will mark 75 years since NATO's creation. Plus, as we look forward to next year's US presidential elections, we'll also be looking at the long-term role of the US both in Ukraine and in NATO. And to do all of that, we're going to be talking to Ambassador Kurt Volker, a former US ambassador to NATO and former US special representative to Ukraine. So, Jason, we're about to hear this interview with Kurt Volker. During the interview, we talk quite a lot about the relationship between Ukraine and NATO, because one of the issues that has come up time and again during the course of this appalling war in Ukraine is to what extent NATO might inadvertently have triggered this by inverted commas, provoking Russia NATO's inclusion of all the former Warsaw Pact countries into NATO may have provoked Russia and aggravated Russia's sense of being surrounded and insecurity. Now, Kurt, in this interview, is going to dispel this myth quite strongly. And I have to say, I agree with him. What I think we have in the Euro-Atlantic region right now is a kind of catch-22. It's really important for NATO to safeguard the principle that any European country which is able to meet the criteria is eligible to join the alliance. That's what they call the open door policy. The more Russia protests about that, the more important it becomes for its own credibility for NATO to uphold that open door policy. And the more that Russia makes threatening noises about how it might react to that, the more countries like Ukraine and Georgia feel they need to join NATO to protect themselves. So we're in this circle, this catch-22, where ironically, it's Russia's own threats and paranoia and protestations, which is what is driving countries like Ukraine and Georgia to want to join NATO in the first place. You've sketched that catch-22 or what I would call a feedback loop very coherently, One of the things we try to do at the Disorder Pod is to unpack the various myths about big issues in our world. And there is a complicated issue about what was agreed or not agreed with Yeltsin and with Putin in the early years about how the West would interact with Russia about formerly Warsaw Pact or Soviet states Did they constitute a sphere of Russian influence that we agreed to? Having followed these issues in your career, I'm really interested, Alex, in your thoughts about the Bucharest summit back in 2008 and then how this led to Vilnius and what we need to do at NATO's 75th anniversary here in D.C. next year. 
what happens at these summits for people who have not participated in these issues? And how do they really set the tone of what is the Western security bloc and how does NATO work? Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, gosh. I mean, this was a central part of my three years as ambassador in Tbilisi. Every year, there would be this huge build-up to the next NATO summit. And time and again, one of the most difficult issues was whether or not we should offer countries like Ukraine and Georgia membership or candidate status or a specific timeline to join. And I would say every year we duck the issue because we're frightened of the Russian response. So a brief timeline. In Bucharest 2008, that's the NATO summit that took place in Bucharest in 2008, NATO gave a promise that Ukraine and Georgia would one day become members of the alliance. But because there was not consensus at that summit, and particular hesitation by the French and Germans, no specific timeline was given and no specific pathway. So they were given this sort of vague promise. And it was only a few months after that that Russia invaded Georgia. And I think to bring down this to the human level, this is like, hey, babes, I get that you want to get married. (laughs) You will be getting a ring at some time in the future. Please don't leave me. I get that you're getting older and you might want to have kids. But babes, like, I'm busy We'll get married, you know, later, I promise. And if you look at it from a kind of guys and dolls perspective, you can see how threatening and destabilizing that kind of indefinite promise is. Fast forward to Vilnius summit, the NATO summit in Vilnius this summer, and we're still dancing around the same issue. And it's like the Beyonce song, if you like it, you really should put a ring on it. NATO is still agonizing about whether or not to give an invitation to Ukraine and Georgia concretely. And this time they creep a little bit forward with Ukraine and say that they will extend an invitation to Ukraine, but they caveat it by saying when allies agree and the conditions are met. (laughs) Which means I still want to flirt for a little while longer and I'm not ready to put a ring on it. And in fact, it's giving an incentive to Putin to try and keep Ukraine unstable because one of the conditions is that Ukraine is not in a condition of war. This is a golden opportunity for Putin to keep messing with Ukraine. So next year, we have a summit in Washington, the 75th anniversary of NATO. This needs to be the wedding And it's interesting because Ukraine is actually fighting and dying to try and unite itself with NATO. Georgia is heading in a different direction. They are becoming very disenchanted. And there is a risk, I think, that they will decide to go back to their old boyfriend, Russia. That exactly hits it, Alex. It's the human psychological dimension of a society feeling let down in the case potentially of Georgia, where they were all in. And now it's like, oh God, you've dumped me twice and then asked to get back together. I'm not interested in getting back together now. You know, you got over it. And the Ukrainians are like, oh, we didn't get this offer because we let you down. We didn't have enough anti-corruption legislation or we hadn't progressed enough with our internal transparency and whatever. And 
they're like, I'm going to fight for this. So what you've asked is that I get a steady job and then we can get married. Okay, great. We're going to conscript all the adult males and we're going to have more than 100,000 people dying in Donbass to win this thing. And then you're going to marry us. And I can't imagine the implications, Alex. And I don't, I shudder the thought. The Ukrainians win the war. Putin is not evicted. And we don't offer them NATO membership. I mean, literally, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Because in this bloody, enduring disorder, anything is possible. Because who knows who are the next Senate majority leader and the Speaker of the House will be, in addition to who the president is. It's possible that one of these terrible we let them down scenarios could play out again. It's like Hercules completing the 12 labors and then not getting the prize, <laughs> right? Ukraine is uh, enduring the 12 labors of Hercules. And one of the things that NATO and the EU always do is they set out these concrete reforms. But the assessment of whether they've met them or not is highly subjective. But I think we should get to Kurt. I've known Kurt for a long, long time. We're good friends through our mutual shared love of the country of Georgia and also the fact that we both have a connection to Senator John McCain, for whom Kurt worked early in his career and where I also met my husband when he was working for Senator John McCain. One of the successful initiatives launched by Kurt was to set up an annual forum in Tbilisi to talk about security challenges in the Euro-Atlantic region, particularly the threat posed by Russia to countries in what we like to call the grey zone, aspiring to join NATO but not yet full members, countries like Ukraine and Georgia. So Kurt and I have both come back from the most recent forum in Tbilisi, which talked about the current state of the war in Ukraine, and how, the title of the forum being, We Can Defeat Putinism. So I began by asking him, what were his main takeaways from that forum? The theme is defeating Putinism and what's going on in that part of the world. It's really Ukraine that's defeating Putinism. Or maybe even more to the point, it's Putin that's defeating Putinism. Because he has overreached in a dramatic and awful way. He has dramatically weakened the Russian military. He's weakened the economy. He's having to run off to meet with Kim Jong-un to get spare parts and artillery. This is really rather striking what, what has happened with Putin and Putinism in Russia. And I think the longer he continues this war in Ukraine, the more he's going to churn up Russia. And at some point, the system's going to snap. Right now, I'd say that Putin and Putinism are getting weaker. Ukraine is guaranteed to survive. But the West is still afraid of its own shadow. We're still afraid to accept that, in fact, it's in our interest for Ukraine to win, for Russia to lose, and to end this imperial and genocidal ideology. We're just afraid of everything. Why are we so afraid? That's fairly easy to identify. People are afraid of Putin turning to nuclear weapons. We're afraid of World War III. We're afraid of escalation and a wider war. We're afraid of Russia disintegrating and then having something even worse. We're afraid of a leader in Russia who's even more ruthless than Putin. We're afraid of having to explain this in our domestic politics. So all of these things just cause the certainly the U.S. administration, but not only in Germany as well and elsewhere, cause everyone to freeze up. It's a war. And when you have an advantage, you push that advantage maximally. And the moment at which Putin might have used nuclear weapons or that he might have gone rogue, those things have long passed the event horizon. 
and I agree with you completely. We have lost faith, as it were, as a civilization. And our forebearers in the Cold War would have understood this situation better, I think, and, and pushed it to a more natural and, and more Clausewitzian conclusion. I fully agree. And I think that describes the battlefield element, where there is an advantage now to the West. Russia has weakened itself and is on its back feet. It is the time to push the advantage. There's that. But the other aspect when, you know, we have all these fears, as we were just talking about, but we don't stop to think that we're already dealing with all of these things anyway. <laughs> it's not as if our doing something is going to bring on something new. They're already out there. Putin is already leaning in maximally in Ukraine. He's already a ruthless genocidal leader. He's already threatening NATO allies. He already has a nuclear capability he threatens to use. And we already have to deal with this in our domestic politics as well. So we're not saving anything by cowering a little bit. We should just accept that this is what it's going to have to be and do it. I think to call a spade a spade, you and I have both written extensively that appeasement has been practiced towards Putin from 2008 in Georgia all the way to the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And whether it was Neville Chamberlain or Obama, appeasement gets under your skin and creates a vicious cycle leading to more appeasement. So emotionally breaking that cycle is probably harder than is popularly understood. I agree with that. Breaking that cycle is harder than never getting into it. And moreover, we've created a, a dynamic where Putin counts on it. Yes. He believes that he will be appeased. He believes he can outlast us. Someone was saying, you know, in Tbilisi with this conference, you know, what's Putin's exit strategy from Ukraine? Putin's exit strategy is Trump. So he's convinced that that's where this is going to go. And it it's therefore urgent and incumbent on us to demonstrate that there is no way that this comes out in his favor. Yeah, so thank you for bringing up the subject of Trump because I certainly found, though the title of the conference was Defeating Putinism, there was quite a lot of subtext in the margins about Trumpism and uh, what the implications are of the 2024 elections. Now, one of the things that was quite interesting at Tbilisi is although there was quite a lot of appreciation for what Biden had done to muster the alliance and give a lot of support to Ukraine, there's also an enormous amount of frustration that it's still a little bit held back, weapon systems not getting there fast enough, and this fear of escalation, and also Biden failing to make the case to the American people about why we need to stay the course. And you were, worked in the Trump administration on Ukraine. I mean, is Putin right to be sort of counting on a return of Trump or Trumpian politics after the next elections? How can you reassure us that that's not going to be the case and that the US will not sell out Ukraine? Well, that's tough. Um, reassure us, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Look, in the first Trump administration, he brought in a lot of people who were strong on national security and foreign policy and who kept things on the right track and, in fact, I think helped implement good policies. So, for example, we shut down Russia's consulate in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. We imposed new sanctions on Russia because of what it was already doing globally. We lifted the Obama-era arms embargo on Ukraine, and we got Javelin anti-tank systems into the Ukrainians' hands in Trump's first year in office. 
The problem is that I can't say with any confidence that that would happen a second time. Trump is now on a mission to go after the deep state, particularly the FBI, Justice Department, and CIA, and maybe State Department, because he views them as being against him and having targeted him in a politicized fashion in the last couple of years. So I think he's going to be more aggressive going after the deep state in a second term. I think he's going to insist that he have only loyalists appointed to senior positions in his administration. But I don't also have any confidence that we we know where he would go. And I think it's going to be with a, a different quality of people joining his administration. You also just went to Ukraine after Tbilisi. How do we end the war? And then looking ahead, because I want to sort of look ahead to NATO, NATO enlargement and summits, how do we provide security guarantees for Ukraine so that this doesn't happen again? Does that necessarily involve joining NATO? What are the prospects for NATO enlargement? I want your take on the wording in the Vilnius summit. What do we need to do between now and the Washington summit if you think enlargement is the solution or some other solution? That's a lot of questions, but I want to get as much out of you. Uh, so that's one question. Okay. Um, <laughs> How do we solve the well, world's problems, Kurt? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's, let's start where you started, which is how does this war end? I think it's important to think about that structurally. Vladimir Putin is determined to reestablish the Russian empire. And he believes that Ukraine is the essential part of what makes Russia an empire. When we were in Georgia, somebody said, a Russian senior official in Moscow, described Georgian dance as an element of Russian culture. And that describes, I think, beautifully the Russian mindset. It's very imperial. Yes, exactly. These places that were part of the Russian Empire, the former Soviet Union later, are not legitimate, inherent places in their own right. They are fiefdoms of Russia. And that's the way they look at Ukraine as well. So Putin in particular is determined to just fight and fight and fight and take it on. He's made this perfectly clear. He doesn't have the means to succeed. Now, what I think will happen is others in Russia, other than Putin, will, will maybe have already realized that this is a failing endeavor for Russia and a very costly endeavor for Russia. I think at some point, the Russians will need to cause a reckoning with Putin and Putinism, which has not happened yet, but it, I think it's coming. Optimism and proactive thought and action is one way to order the disorder. And we on this podcast want to think positively. So how can we win the media war? Because this is a public relations question. We both know that, you know, people on the Corbynite left in the UK and some of the extreme Sanders left here in the US are going to believe the canard that NATO fears of enlargement caused the war. And then I meet with policymakers in the Arab world. And no matter how high level they are, they're like, oh, NATO caused this war. And I'm like, oh, man, how can you believe it? This is a Russian talking point. I think you and I both want to have the right public diplomacy where we stand up for our values and we're imbued with the same optimism and dynamism that the Ukrainians have that we've lost. So talk to me. How do we win this argument with 
the extreme elements in our society, and then the non-Western, but yet democratic populaces in places like South Asia and Latin America, who, when you and I talk NATO enlargement, they see it as hostile. How do we undo those misconceptions? Yes, that's a great question. Very, very difficult, because if it were easy, we'd already be doing it. Something that's lacking in our efforts here, which is White House leadership and President Biden needing to go out in a very aggressive public way to explain to the American people why Ukraine's victory, and that's the word to use, why Ukraine's victory is an American interest and how it is reasonable and cost-effective even for helping Ukraine to improve America's national security position in the world and to cause China to think twice before it tries to attack Taiwan. And most of our listeners, by the way, Kurt, are British. So just to reframe that, and tremendously in the British and European national security interests as well. Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think British leaders have done a better job of explaining the stakes and Britain's interests in this to a British audience better than we've done in the United States and that European politicians have done in their home countries. But we do have to go out and do that. And the reason we have not, and uh, this is the fundamental thing, is uh, we are afraid. Particularly Biden is afraid that if he goes out and makes a robust case for Ukraine, his opponents, particularly on the far right, will accuse him of warmongering, of being reckless, of dragging us into World War III, all of these accusations. And so he's hesitant to dive into that and take it on. The best thing that he could do is to own it, to grab a hold of it and make the case himself saying, this is about freedom in the world. America is best off when our values are ascendant Right now, we have dictators, uh, authoritarians, and aggressors who are trying to shut them down. By helping other free people defend themselves, we are creating a better environment for the United States. This is fundamentally in America's interest. And I think he could establish a legacy for himself, a, a high reputation of being a leader on principles and values, which is what I think he always wanted to be anyway but he's afraid to do it now. I think we need that. Kurt, so tell us, how do we provide security guarantees and how do we learn the lessons? I mean, you were talking about Biden's hesitancy. It absolutely terrifies me that in Washington on the 75th anniversary of NATO's alliance, we're going to make exactly the same mistake we made in 2008 in Bucharest and fudge it again. So what do we need to do? We need to invite Ukraine to join NATO as quickly as possible. Everyone will say, oh, how can you do that when the country is still at war? Won't that drag us all into a war, a NATO war with Russia? And won't that be World War III? And the flip side of that is if you don't do it, you give Putin every incentive to keep the war going because the fact of the war is what's preventing everyone from ending it and securing Ukraine. So I think we need to face up to the facts that it is a war. And if you want to stop it, the best way to stop it is to assure that Ukraine will be protected. Now, 
Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, that's the operative article, very short. Listeners should drag out the treaty and read it. It says that an attack on one member will be responded to collectively by all members. It doesn't say how. It doesn't say that we're going to send our troops to the front line to go fight Russians in you know, eastern Ukraine. It just says there will be a collective response to deal with the security needs of the member that's attacked. The only time Article 5 has ever been invoked is uh, after 9-11, the attacks on New York and Washington by al-Qaeda. And NATO did not mount an operation to go attack Afghanistan or al-Qaeda or whatever. That was done by the U.S. and Poland and the U.K., but it was not a NATO operation. What NATO did was contribute to air policing over the United States. So that was the nature of your Article 5 response by NATO. In the case of Ukraine, I think we should be using the NATO-Ukraine Council that ex was just established as the forum where we sit down with Ukraine and discuss what do we do under Article 5 to help Ukraine with its security. And some of it is what we're already doing, providing arms and training, some of it are things we could do additionally. I think we could help Ukraine with its air defenses and do so relatively safely without involving Western troops on the front lines. I think we could help Ukraine with its sea lanes and try to assure freedom of navigation in the Western Black Sea so Ukraine's ports can be open again. Let's talk about that and agree on what it is and do it. And then if we are already doing what we would do for Ukraine or with Ukraine under Article 5, then what's the hesitation about actually inviting them to join at that point? It's just a formality if we're already doing what we're going to do. So I think we have to get our minds around this and do it by the Washington summit. We cannot afford to swing and miss yet again, which is what we did at Vilnius. We need to get over this and get it done. The very nature of the global enduring disorder is all of these negative feedback loops and intertwined chicken and egg problems. So this is no different than other chicken and egg problems. Ukraine needed to already be in NATO from 2008 and the Bucharest summit onward to deter Putin, and it needs to be in NATO or have a concrete invitation to help end the war. I liked how prescriptive you were there and the moral clarity of your answer, Kurt. But what I find troubling is that the NATO that you have cast or given us a picture of at the Bucharest summit at Vilnius and hopefully not in Washington is one where there's a degree of dysfunction and coordination complexities. And the NATO that we like to talk about on this program is an international institution that works better than the UN and the IMF and CONCACAF and BRICS and FIFA and actually is a model for other international institutions, how they can actually get their shit in order and make compromises and get recalcitrant members on like Turkey to not block Finland and Sweden and actually get shit done. So from zero to 10, where zero is, NATO is just like any other international institution. The Turks use their vetoes. They screw things up. It's a talking shop. To 10, People in the member states really believe in it. They're entirely behind it. And it institutionally works. We have compromises. We enforce them. This is the best international organization that's ever existed. I think we're closer to a seven or an eight. But you tell me, where are we on that scale? What's working and what's not working? Yeah, well, I agree with you. I, I think seven or eight is a minimum, not quite a 10, but high. 
the thing that you didn't mention, I agree with everything you mentioned, but the thing that you didn't mention is the power of consensus. NATO is effective and powerful and successful because of the consensus rule. It means when people finally agree to do something, they're bought in and it is actually agreed. That is incredibly powerful as compared to other organizations where you vote and you, you vote against, you get outnumbered, other people vote for, and then you don't do anything because you're not committed to it. And that, I think, is something we largely avoid with NATO. The other is that collective defense is a very powerful motivator. Turkey is a great example because Turkey lives in a dangerous neighborhood. And if Turkey's ever attacked, it wants to be sure that it has NATO behind it. Overall, I think NATO is still the most functional organization, the most meaningful one that we've got. Everyone is spending their time trying to come up with an alternative to the obvious. The obvious is NATO membership. And instead, we're doing G7 security assurances. We're doing long-term commitments to armaments. We're doing long-term training programs. But none of this means anything if it's not legally binding, if it's not a guarantee of response and that's exactly what the NATO treaty is for. And from an American point of view, I don't see that you would have a real commitment to Ukraine without NATO, because we want the burden sharing all allies, and that's what actually makes NATO effective. I also want to foster consensus because to order the disorder, we need to realize that we have so many more shared interests rather than different interests whether it's climate change or tax havens or averting nuclear war or preventing misinformation in cyberspace, 98% of the nation states of the world actually have the same interest. How do we use the way that that works in a NATO context to try to get similar action on things like misinformation and vaccines and climate change? What's a lesson that we can take from how NATO gets that consensus to other areas where we need buy-in and enforcement? Basics like security are ones where people will get serious. And nice-to-haves like common tax policy are ones that you're never going to get done. People will have different interests and it's okay to pursue them. So security is kind of fundamental. You're talking food and shelter. That will concentrate the minds. If you're talking 15% versus 8% tax, people are going to be all over the map. Uh, so we have to differentiate between security and some of the other issues. Okay. But climate change is a existential security issue, is it not? And we really, really struggle to be on the same page. Not everybody agrees with you. People say, okay, there is climate change, there is global warming, but can a government fix that is restrictive and costly be the way to deal with climate change? Or do you allow the markets to work and technology to evolve that becomes more efficient? No, people like to say there's a global consensus about climate change, but there really isn't. You know, what you're getting at with this whole disorder podcast is the duality of human nature. You're getting at the fact on the one hand that humans are hopeful, aspiring, uh, moral, the type of beings that are trying to build a better world, and at the same time, humans are prone to failure and self-destruction, and we combine these things all the time. 
can NATO, given what we've sketched here, the way that it can build consensus, the way that it can channel states and individuals' desires for security and making compromise, can it play a role in restoring and upholding and expanding a democratic-led order outside of Europe? We don't traditionally think of NATO as a key instrument in confronting Chinese aggression or in containing disorders like Iran. But when we win in Ukraine, what can we do to take what we've learned institutionally to confront these other challenges? Well, that's a tough one. The consensus rule and the feeling that NATO is there for collective defense of its members that kind of enforces a regional mentality to NATO as well. It's Euro-Atlantic. And to get NATO to say, okay, if China attacks Taiwan, we're all going to go help defend Taiwan, that's not going to happen. It's not as immediate to any NATO member state as self-defense. So that's not the model. What I think NATO has done well in the past is lead crisis management operations, such as in Kosovo and Bosnia and Afghanistan, and that it can do. We are not there yet in Asia, but we are doing more with Korea and Japan and Australia than we have ever done before. And so I think that's kind of like a soft version of NATO. There's no treaty, there's no obligation of collective defense, but a lot of shared security interest which is growing. And I think that's maybe drawing on some of those lessons from NATO. Well, just as you've been really inspiring to us, Kurt, I wanted to know who inspired you to get into foreign policy and to hold the views that you do and with the clarity that you do. I got to know John McCain. I worked in his Senate office in 1997-98. I then led the McCain Institute for seven years. And what I was really struck by with John McCain, who's the only person I ever met who is not afraid of anything. He spent five years as a prisoner of war, barely alive, beaten, tortured, etc. And he came out of that and you couldn't scare him anymore. He'd been through it. And he was not always right. He was wrong on some things. However, he always had the courage of his own convictions and he was willing to pursue them and fight for whatever cause he believed needed to be fought for, and also comfortable enough to change his mind if you realize that, okay, this is not right. I realized that if you want to be successful, if you want others to believe in you, you want to be a leader, that you have to have courage and integrity and the willingness to act. You've ended on such a lovely, inspiring note because it's so easy to believe nothing can be done, that this is all too difficult. But actually, and we come back to this time and time again in the podcast, it can be done with the self-belief and the courage and the leadership. Not only is it something can be done, something will be done. And who's going to be doing it? <laughs> is it going to be people fighting for the right causes? Or is it going to be people who are selfish and, and taking advantage of a situation? It's imperative that those who are fighting for the right causes actually get up and do. After the break, how could lessons from how NATO works help us order the disorder?
Jason, that was such a tour de force by Kurt. One of the issues that came up out of Tbilisi that I took away was we were also talking about this issue of the West holding ourselves back, being fearful of the consequences of our own actions. One of the lines that somebody came up with at the Tbilisi Forum is in some ways the biggest threat to NATO is ourselves, that we need to trust in ourselves, we need to trust in our mission, and we need to have the confidence of our convictions, which is something that Senator John McCain had in abundance. Um, the other point that I really took away, and we said, well, you know, Ukraine is defeating Putinism. And then he said, well, actually, even you could say it's Putin defeating Putinism. I thought there was so much in that. What did you take away from the interview? There's a lot of complexity to these issues, and I have to say, Alex, that was certainly a challenging interview for me. I enjoy that we've been having on tons of guests who can inspire me. But we haven't really had one so far where I, I don't necessarily agree with them on every issue. And that's important to have real political debates. For example, I disagree with the view that Biden has been soft on supporting Taiwan or deterring China. And I respect Kurt's perspective that climate change or AI might not be perceived by enough of the global populace as an existential security issue. And I hold the view climate change, AI, cyber misinformation are truly existential. And for many of us, they may even be more existential than the fear of nuclear war. So for me, this was a great opportunity to agree disagreeably with Kurt while learning from him and being inspired. Yeah, I didn't think Kurt was saying that it's, for example, climate change is not a security issue. He's just saying that it's not for everybody. It's not experienced in the same way. And you and I talked about this in one of the earlier episodes, which is one of the challenges with an issue like climate change is that for half of humanity, they're already experiencing it and it already is a security or a life-threatening issue for them. But for another half of humanity, and unfortunately those who are living predominantly in the pollution-producing countries, we're kind of shielded from the consequences of climate change. So I don't think he was defending the proposition. He was just saying that it's not perceived in the same way imminently. It was really interesting for me to hear from Kurt that it wasn't Obama providing the anti-tank javelin missiles to Ukraine. In fact, he was asked to do so and did it. But that Trump, who was known for his pro-Russian and anti-Ukrainian sympathies, did provide 400 javelins to Ukraine. I would kind of chalk this up to the fact that in America, we have checks and balances, we have multiple nodes of decision-making, and H.R. McMaster and a lot of traditional McCain-style Republicans in Congress in the beginning of the Trump period were like, this guy is kissing up way too much to Putin. We're going to have to sanction Russia and arm the Ukrainians even more than Obama was. Otherwise, he's going to give them the farm. But what this does for me is that even as someone who follows these issues, I realize that we can't just make simple assumptions about how American foreign policy was done, that well, if Trump did it, it was pro-Russia, or if Obama did it, it was good in this way. And then that, that's essentially false, and that we on The Disorder Show are happy to say 
There were things that happened in the Trump period that were good decisions, and that there were things that happened in the Obama and other periods which were completely limp-wristed, and you just have to face that. Absolutely. That gets us to the point that we were also talking about with Kurt, about why we need leaders who can make the case, who can help connect the dots for their publics about why something that appears to be happening in a far off place and doesn't concern them actually is related to their security. And if we don't face up to it and take the hard choices now, the actions are only going to be more hard the later we leave them and more costly. So we need to be willing to face up to these things now. But it's the leadership needed to join the dots and make those connections. Yes. And if I could order that disorder, you might think that as the world's problems became more complicated, we need more technocratic leadership because how to regulate the internet and make sure that the AI has the correct regulation. These are technical questions and you need a lot of computer and economic knowledge. And that's also true. But given the disparate nature of our media space, we also need more charismatic and more down-to-earth leadership with the rhetorical flourishes of a Churchill or, to my mind, an Obama, but Obama resonates with me and not with everyone, because complicated problems need to be made simple and need to be made that the average person is motivated to do his part, and we need that more than ever. And that kind of leadership where technical competence is guaranteed in the administration, but there's relatability to the people. Wow, that's a difficult thing to solve, but we need that to get out of this disorder. And, you know, this goes to the point about civil servants. Civil servants need to provide the technical advice and expertise, and you need a leader who can grasp the essence and then communicate why it matters. And that's what we're trying to do in this podcast. We are harnessing experts We're trying to digest why this stuff matters. That's what we're doing, Jason. Well, I've really, really enjoyed this episode. I think Kurt was a wonderful interviewee. Kurt's charisma and just verbal fluency was quite overpowering in that interview. I guess I haven't had that intense a man crush since we recorded (laughs) Jonathan Powell. Do you want to put a ring on it? You know, when you have one of these man crushes, it doesn't (laughs) need to be forever. It's like a little man crush. I just want to kind of, you know, feel it out. Well, I definitely love Kurt. He is very smooth and he's very smart. If you want to support our show, there are many ways to do just that. First of all, you can follow Disorder now wherever you're listening then every episode will arrive in your feed automatically. Secondly, please follow us on social media. We're at Disorder Show. And finally, for more on today's topics, please follow the links in our show notes. Thanks to our producer, George McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. Goalhanger's managing director is Jack Davenport. And special thanks go out to the former program managers of the NATO and Global Enduring Disorder Project, Zena Starbuck and Guy Fiends. I hope everyone has an orderly week and I shall relay back to Kurt that he's a smooth operator. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye.